Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 33 of Daffy's Roundtable. This week, I have another special episode for the frog nerds. Chase Jennings of Houston Frogs is doing some crazy innovative stuff for the frog hobby, from temperature indicators and emergency frog care packages to culturing fungi and all sorts of tissue culture plants for use in our vivariums. Join me as Chase tells us the Houston frog story and talks about all the awesome products he's working on. But before we do that, a special thank you to the show's sponsor, Exoterra, for making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into part one of my conversation with Chase Jennings of Houston Frogs. Awesome. Okay, I'm very, very excited about this. Because, um, yeah, just going through your Instagram, the stuff you're doing in the hobby is crazy. Um, it's, it's really innovative, you know? Like, there's not many people looking to... Um, reach like look looking out of the box and finding other solutions you know we have we have these these products and everyone's happy with it and kind of sitting there and be like okay but you are taking a different spin of things different spin on things and you're kind of you're you're creating new products you're you're finding the most naturalistic way so um i really want to dig into all those projects but before we do that um can you tell me a little bit how you got into the hobby and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. How did you, first of all, how did you get into the hobby? Well, um, be 100% honest with you, when I got into the hobby, it wasn't the easiest start. Um, I'd always loved dart frogs. I remember seeing dart frogs um, at a zoo when I was a little kid. And when I saw um, at a reptile show, actually, that you could buy dart frogs, I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I've only seen those in a zoo. Um, and, you know, the thing about it is when I got my first dart frogs, um, I didn't know everything in the world about them. Uh, I was still learning at the time. I, of course, looked everything up online that I could, um, but I was also very trusting of you know, the person I got them from. Um, the second person I got dart frogs from was actually really, really, really knowledgeable. And that was actually um, Taryn at Dart Frog Connection. And um, he's a really great guy. Uh, he knows his stuff. The first guy that I got my stuff from, uh, he was just somebody that was reselling frogs, didn't know what he was doing, and um, gave me the improper care info, which actually led to those frogs uh, not making it, my first frogs. And um, so eventually when I got to the point where I was very knowledgeable about the frogs and, of course, combining it with my background in science, um, awesome. you know, I decided that I wanted to make a company that was geared towards helping new people into the hobby to be successful like I was not when I first started. I didn't want anybody else to have that same uh, horrible experience that I did um, because you know, my fiance, we're about to get married in about three weeks here. Um, she could tell you- Congratulations. That um, that's what's made things even crazier, wedding planning. But um, Yeah, well, thank you for giving me time during the wedding period. I had, Yeah, I had no idea. That's awesome. Congratulations once again. No problem. But um, yeah, you know, that the really painful thing was, um, and she can tell you that, you know, I, I took it really hard when each of those frogs uh, didn't make it from that first set. But I did everything wrong first. The first set. I mean, they told me how to set up. They told me to put, you know, just sphagnum moss down. They told me to use just a screen top and everything was wrong. Absolutely wrong. And, you know, the thing about it is I listened to them. I trusted them. And this is the mistake that most people in the hobby make is that they trust the wrong people. And, you know, now years down the line, after having over 3,000 frogs and wow. over 150 localities, and after doing every single thing right and every single thing wrong, um, I'm trying to make sure that people who are getting to this hobby for the first time, and even people who have been this hobby for a while, are successful. Because the really bad thing is, you know, I tried again, and obviously I was successful with everything. Um, and I've seen that with a lot of people, but I've seen the other side where a lot of people have a bad experience, their frogs die, they blame themselves, and then uh, they get out of it. And that robs us of those people who could potentially contribute to the hobby. And it also uh, is something that really hurts our industry. Um, when I first started selling frogs, I had a lot of people that said, oh, dart frogs are so hard to keep. Uh, oh, they're so fragile. Uh, oh, they're just something that, you know, you get it and it's probably going to die in the next week. And I found that, that was all lies. It wasn't true. Dart frogs are actually very easy to keep. They're enjoyable to keep. 
they can live for 20, 25 years. I have a, a pair of erotists. They're actually 23 years old. That's and, incredible. And, you know, I got them from a friend of mine in Louisiana. Uh, I, I hadn't had but maybe like six, seven years. But they have lived for 23 years. And the thing about it is most people end up buying these frogs from flippers. People who are buying them, know nothing about them. Just say whatever information they can to get people to put down their hard-earned money for them. Oftentimes, they're wild-caught frogs that may have chytrid, ranavirus, maybe a maceid. They probably have parasites. And that, having a sick frog on top of bad information, dooms almost everybody from the start when they get them from an ill-reputed place. Um, so again... This company that I started, Houston Frogs, I wanted to make sure that was geared towards making people successful. And every product that I've been trying to make, uh, not necessarily everything, because there's a lot of things that have been novelty as well, but making a lot of products that are geared towards ensuring that people are successful. Um, for instance, the clay bath that I came out with, I realized that there was uh, an issue that we have with uh, supplementation. And... You know, if you use uh, particular supplements in the right order, then you're golden for the most part. Um, but if you don't know the proper combination to use, uh, let's say a vendor that I used to know would tell people that, oh, yeah, you're supposed to use concentrated vitamin A every week. Um, well, yeah. if you use concentrated vitamin A every week, that can cause hypervitaminosis A because vitamin A is uh, fat soluble, saying that they actually store up. And if they don't utilize enough to be able to prevent from building up to toxic levels, then they can get hypervitaminosis A, uh, which can actually cause similar symptoms to hypovitaminosis A. Um, it can cause blindness. It can cause swelling. It can cause sun death. There's a lot of different issues with it. Anyways, um, and then also under supplementation of calcium, under supplementation of magnesium, under supplementation of D3, things like that. And so my whole... Um, process with dart frogs towards supplementation. I'm gearing it towards a more holistic approach. And by holistic, I don't necessarily mean all organic. Yeah. What I mean is looking at how they absorb things in the wild, those vitamins and minerals, and then implementing that in the hobby. Because the way that we have been uh, supplementing in the hobby for years has just been orally. But the thing about it is frogs have this amazing osmotic skin that absorbs everything, for better or for worse. It's a double-edged sword. And so they can absorb medication through their skin. They can absorb uh, minerals and vitamins through their skin. They can also absorb harmful things like um, harmful chemicals or harmful bacteria through their skin. Um, but I believe in using that, the good side of the double-edged sword toward our advantage making the clay bath have it very rich in minerals that they would normally be absorbing in their environment. And the frogs are able to play in that in uh, very uh, easily bioavailable minerals, absorb that through their skin. It helps with their supplementation. You know, I also believe in, of course, giving them all those oral supplements and also believe in, um, you know, every once in a while, it's not a bad thing to uh, use water that is rich in minerals as well. Uh, I'm also, using, you know, as long as you're not using it all the time, because then you'll get calcium buildups and you'll hate your life because yes. you'll <laughs> calcium buildup on the glass. Uh, and eating block too, which I'll be coming out with soon, particularly for fruit flies, because the biggest problem that we have with oral supplementation is that those powered supplements only stay on the flies for a limited amount of time. They're constantly desiccating the flies. They're drying them out. The flies hate those supplements being on their bodies. So they're constantly cleaning themselves off. Well, once it gets that second day that the fly's been in there, any that have not been in have very little nutritional content other than the proteins and the lipids. They have vitamins and minerals that we dust them with. They're so vile to the frogs. And so um, if we make this um, vitamin block, you know, it's sort of like a, I don't know if you've seen like a salt lick for cattle or things like that, but um, a lot of ranchers will actually out um, these blocks of minerals and uh, the cattle will lick them. Well, the whole idea with this block that I'm making that will be out very soon is that it's very rich and not just minerals, but a lot of vitamins that the frogs need. And it's something that attracts the fruit flies. So when the fruit flies are actually on the block, the frogs are licking the, the flies off the block. Uh, it's sort of like the concept that people- They're use getting the minerals. 
Yeah, but instead of it just being a banana, it's an actual block that frogs are eating now gut-loaded flies with these vitamins and minerals, just like in the supplements that they coat them with, and they're also licking this block accidentally, or maybe accidentally climbing on this block to get the flies, which again, they absorb these vitamins through their skin. So again, it's going at a multifaceted approach to ensure that they have all the vitamins and minerals they need, because normally in the wild, they get through the insects they eat, they get through the gut content of the insects they eat, because those insects eat a wide variety of plants, and those plants have a wide variety of vitamins and minerals in them. And they're also getting it through the clays and soils that they're actually going through. They get through the water sources that they're also going through because they're going to splash through puddles and things like that. So again, supplementation is just this huge multifaceted beast. that I feel like a lot of people have really simplified so much over the years. And it's something that's not so simple. So I'm working on those different facets to make sure that, you know, hey, if you accidentally get your supplementation schedule wrong with dusting the flies or if you forget to supplement or you accidentally add too many flies that then wipe a lot of the vitamins off them if you're overfeeding your frog is still gonna be perfectly fine because it has these other sources of vitamins and minerals no that's awesome i i, I actually heard somewhere that the uh, once they supplement the flies it only actually lasts four to five hours and then um same thing for crickets or any feeders that once the supplement is on them it's only four to five hours of of that um, but th that's awesome. So, so let me ask you this. You said, you said, um, early on that, uh, your background in science, what, uh, what did you study? So, um, funny enough, actually, I think you have a background in environmental science, don't you? I do. Yes. I actually A&M for a, um, a bachelor's in environmental science. And then, um, you know, I also took a lot of biology classes, which I really loved. Um, but everybody's told me at the time that, oh, you got to go toward environmental environmental is like, where the money's at. That's what's growing industry. And so, you know, I, instead of doing a degree in biology, I was like, okay, I'll go ahead and do one environmental science. And I got that. And then, um, I decided as well that, Hey, I want to go back for a master's. And then everybody's telling me, oh, Hey, like you've, you've got to do something that's more geology oriented because, and, and I was originally told that or like, oh, you know, it's shifting away from environmental to oil and gas again. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I went for a master's of geoscience that was based in environmental uh, classes and biology classes. But I also at the same time got a geographical information systems. Uh, GIS. GIS. Yeah. <laughs> for also that, hey, this is a huge growth field. So I was like, you know what? When I get out, if I can't find a job in environmental, I'll find one oil and gas. If I can't find one oil and gas, I'll find one GIS. That and is hilarious. For anything. So uh, I've done all those things. As we, we have the same. Okay, that's very cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So yeah, yeah I end up um, graduating with a master's of geoscience with a two-year graduate GIS certification as well. Awesome. And I had a really interesting wayward path because my first job was actually as an instrumentation specialist uh, onshore drilling. And I did that for a year until the oil market crashed. You know, it crashes like every eight years or so. We always have a crash in the oil market. And uh, that was really interesting. Um, I actually did a lot of uh, work on some of the first electromagnetics that they were using uh, in Texas. Um, at the time, they were mostly using mold pul mud pulse um, for doing... Um, uh, you know, instrumentation specialist work, uh, logging, things like that. And they're trying to do electromagnetics. I'm going to try and not get too into that, though, because we're talking about frogs. frogs. Absolutely, yeah. But anyways, um, and then after that crash, I decided to go back into the environmental field. And then I was an environmental scientist. And, you know, I've done water, air, soil testing, radon testing. I mean, the whole gauntlet. Um, and during that time, I also... Um, ran an amber mine down Chiapas, Mexico with a, a friend of mine. And I did that for a few years while working a regular job. That was just a side job. And so you can sometimes look at my, uh, oh, you can go on Facebook, look at my old, old company, uh, Microfossils, etc. And then um, I decided, you know, after, after keeping dart frogs, again, all this time, you know, building up knowledge about them, learning about them, um, I wanted to start up a dart frog business. And I started Houston Frogs, um, I believe about three years ago or so. 
Um, I didn't I didn't start doing it full time until um, COVID, of course. Um, I had been an environmental scientist for a few years, and uh, then I became a earth and space science teacher. My fiance is actually an art teacher, and I discovered that teachers are actually paid more in this country than what scientists are. And so I was like, wow, I get three months off for summer and I get paid more and I work less hours during the week. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. And, gig, yeah. and so I was an earth and space science teacher for a year. And that was a really fun job. I mean, honestly, it was amazing getting summer off because I got to build up Houston frogs while I had my summer off. I got to play with frogs. That was amazing. Yeah. And I, what more do you want? I saw paychecks rolling in. I was like, wow, what kind of job is this? <laughs> um, and it was so much easier than being a scientist. I mean, I say that some parts teaching are not hard. I mean, I love the kids. Hate dealing with the administration. But the kids were amazing. I love that, you know, spark that they had when they they got it, you know, like they really um, learned a passion for science. I love sharing my passion for science. And so that was one of the most fun things about teaching was just like the kids having fun with it, enjoying it, actually sparking interest in them in science. Um, and, and when COVID hit, it was the weirdest thing because, you know, all the schools shut down. Uh, you know, everybody was like, yeah, you got to stay home. We're quarantined inside. And that's the point which I really was able to go full force with building up this business, Houston Rocks. Um, and so I was able to have a lot more time at home researching. I went ahead to spend two hours a day commuting because I'd have to drive an hour to school and then an hour back. And it was like, you know, 10 hours my week uh, wasted yeah. on the road. So I had an extra 10 hours outside of teaching. And, um, and so that's when it really, really, really took off. And it's just been you know, exploding since then. Um, and I've, you know, built it up. We now do, you know, of course, the tissue culturing. We now do the uh, mycological work under Texas Mycology. We now do the uh, 3D printing, a lot of different 3D models that you can get miniature for decor. And that's through um, uh, biology and 3D. And then also um, the newts, of course, Phibios uh, Labs, which I love the newts. They're really cool. They're just as cool as the frogs, I think. Yeah, so so are you breeding uh, the newts and the frogs and everything else yourself? Or do you kind of... So, yeah, so the thing about it is I used to actually breed all the frogs myself. And it was a ton of work. Like, yeah. a ton of work. We'd have to make 600 fruit fly cultures every week. Yeah, no and, doubt. and I'd have my fiance help me. It was... She hated it. She absolutely hated it. And, um, you know, the thing about it is it, it really is a lot of work. When you breed frogs, it's very difficult to do anything else. And, you know, luckily I now have uh, a business partner with that and he's helping me to breed all the frogs. And so that's actually at facility three. Um, so all the frogs are over there in their own facility and he's handling all that for me. And that's really, really nice. Um, and, and then so far as the newts, those are actually in facility four. Um, those are actually another one with another friend who's a business partner and he does all the control of the newt breeding. Um, and then my role is I do everything else behind the scenes. Um, so far as, um, you know, I've been really focusing lately on the tissue culturing. I've been focusing lately on the, the mycological work with the different types of fungi. i um, also been focusing on some of the, the dry goods um, and some of the three print models. And, and the thing that I realized um, a couple of years ago actually was that I can't do everything. And I want everything. I am super ADHD. My mind goes down every path. There's squirrels all over the place I want to chase. And maybe that's why my name is that, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I realized I couldn't do everything. And I had tried hiring a lot of different people. And, and the problem I had was that, you know, they have this saying that nobody ever does it as well as you do. And it's so true. And I yeah. found it out. And the thing is, it really takes somebody who has a passion for it, that has a huge stake in it, to do a really, really, really over-the-top good job. And that's why I brought in uh, my two business partners, the Newts, and with the uh, Frogs, because they're people that are absolutely, their life is dedicated to it. They are over-the-top, overqualified. They've got this. And, and I can trust them. Um, and it's so much better than having employees that, you know, before I would constantly have to check things over. I was like, 
oh my God, you've been using the wrong supplement for like two weeks now. Like, what are you doing? And it takes attention to detail too, right? They need to know the frogs individually and, and all that. It, it does. And it was just, it was eating up so much my time, not just um, overlook, not just like overviewing everything and make sure everything was done, was done right, but also babysitting, catching mistakes, going back and fixing mistakes. And it was just so much more work and I couldn't do what I was passionate about. I couldn't really do any more research development. Um, so now that I have a couple of business partners helping with those aspects. I'm like, wow, I can actually focus on what I need to. I can do my research and do all my experimentation. And, and I don't have to worry about things going awry with frogs or things going awry with the, the newts. So, um, and that's why you've probably been seeing a lot more uh, new products coming out from me lately is because they all focus on that. Now, within the last month or so, I've had wedding playing to do. And so I haven't dealt <laughs> near as much playing and development um, of different products, but, uh, after the wedding at the end of this month, then I'll have a lot more time on my hands again. And I have a lot of new products that, uh, I just need to test, uh, I need to need finish testing on and then I can finally re release them. Yeah. We're, we're all looking forward to, to the new products coming out. Uh, but, but let's, let's maybe jump into some of the products that are, you already have out cause you have a lot of cool stuff that, uh, that I want to discuss. Yeah. That's <laughs> awesome. Ask me if they can so let's start with, I kind of did some like, you know, scrolling through the website, finding out I did. I, I want to start with some of the stuff I saw on Instagram though, because that stuff like was the, kind of the stuff that started dry, drawing me in. So sure. Um, I was seeing a lot of, uh, for the, one of the first things I saw was the nano indicator. I have it written here. That's why I don't mess up the name. Um, temperature indicating nano frogs. Yes. 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 And that's something that I'll be coming out with a much larger model soon saying that's a good size um because that was the only thing that some people told me was like oh no they lost it like it fell <laughs> in and they couldn't find they it couldn't find it yeah no and that's why i usually tell people glue it down too because that way it doesn't fall off and disappear in the substrate um but you know one of the biggest things that we have uh in the hobby is uh these dangers towards the frogs and it could be desiccation it could be um temperature swings whether it be getting too cold or too hot um, and, you know, I wanted to make something that was really an easy visual indicator and something also fun for people to put in there and be like, hey, like if the frog's the wrong color, you know that the frogs are too hot or the frogs are too cold. Um, and so I actually have another one that I'll be releasing soon that will actually indicate if the temperature is too cold, if it's okay. 65 degrees. Um, and that's something that, again, I'm still in the testing phase. It'll be released probably about a month from now. Um, and I am actually working on building a international website as well so that our friends uh, internationally can get stuff, at least that, the goods. That was one of my questions. I was wondering if you can ship stuff to Canada because there's so many cool products on that website. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the thing. Like I'm actually um, building this new website, particularly so anybody that's you know, in Canada or in the UK or um, any other country outside the United States, It'll calculate the shipping properly. It'll calculate the, the VAT properly, all that stuff. Um, and then, you know, of course, you won't be able to get the frogs and some of the plants, sadly enough. Um, but you'll be able to get all the cool different dry goods that we make. Including like some of the uh, mushroom kits and the, uh, um, or I guess that does that count as plants? Well, that's the thing I'm working on because you have to have certain permits for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's sort of like all these fiery hoops that the government makes for you that you have to jump through them. And then a lot of times they're like, oh, I missed that fiery hoop over there. Let me go and jump through that one now, too. Uh, yeah. And all the while they're picking your pockets, too. Yes, so, of course. Yeah, of course. You have to see if, whether it's even worth it for you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to figure all that out. Uh, and the fungi are something that's going to be absolutely revolutionary towards the hobby. Um, it's something that I want definitely be able to ship internationally but again it's going to take a lot of work a lot of talking to a business attorney to make sure that i'm doing everything right um because the last thing i want to do is get in trouble for anything yeah especially with something like mushrooms you know they might think either you're shipping them for the wrong reasons or maybe pests and invasive species and all like there's there's so many different like things to, to consider um how do you culture the mushrooms i i i, I when we were speaking earlier you said you go out and you find life cultures and you kind of like, I don't know, maybe if you could explain the process for a sec. There's two different ways to go about it. 
you buy a clean culture from another laboratory or sometimes just a hobbyist that's gone out and collected tissue samples or maybe even just um, you know found a culture from somebody else that's clean. But the first process is either getting a clean culture from someone else or going out and collecting tissue samples. Uh, now, collecting tissue samples is a lot of fun, but it's a lot more difficult than getting a clean culture, which, by the way, not, all, not always do you get a clean culture. Um, I have been shipped plenty of bad cultures, which so typically you get a liquid culture syringe and then you'll actually uh, take that liquid culture and put that onto a agar plate, uh, typically with a nutrient agar. And this nutrient agar will cause this fungi to grow very rapidly. Well, sometimes you also have bacteria and other fungi that are undesirable that grow if it's not a clean culture. And sometimes this undesirable fungi can look almost exactly like the fungi that you are looking for, which is very annoying. So typically it's a process of growing on that. Once it has grown out on the agar plate, you then take a wedge of agar and you put it into a sterilized grain culture, let it fully colonize that. If all that looks good, then you put into a wood culture, which typically is in a bag or a container, depending on if we're doing like a jar or if we're doing a bag. And once that's fully colonized and it's ready to go, then it goes in the fruiting chamber. And that's where we maintain humidity very high, typically between 70 80%. It has constant airflow through it with clean filtered air. And then you fruit out the fungi. And if it fruits out properly, then you know, well, if it is a fruiting species, I work with some that don't even fruit. And you're like, okay, yeah, it's good. It's clean culture. It's gone through the whole process. And then you can actually put it on the market. And that's where I also sell uh, clean cultures on agar, clean cultures on grain if you want master grain spawn, or if you want the um, fruiting cultures that are ready to go. If you want um, a small terrarium culture that just has a little golf ball sized fruit, or if you want something that's going to have more of a, a fist sized fruit that's going to be safe for frogs in a vivarium. Say so it's not going to sporulate a lot, but also not going to have too large fruiting bodies, but you can enjoy a vivarium. Or if you want something that's you know, gourmet use, something that you're going to be using in your kitchen, so you can grow it on your kitchen counter, harvest the fruits and put them straight in the pan, and you don't have to worry about them having maggots and things like that that typically they're going to have in the wild. Now, the other process of going out and collecting tissue samples is much more fun. and that's It sounds cool. like it is, yeah. And that's where you can get some things that are not currently in cultivation. And a lot of the mushrooms that I'm trying to work with are not in cultivation because a lot of people don't currently see a use for it. And the reason for that is because a lot of people, you know, entopathogenic fungi, typically people didn't see a use for them before except in agricultural fields uh, to control some pests. But I'm seeing it as there's literally entopathogenic fungi that will not touch hexapods or uh, springtails. They won't touch crustaceans or isopods but they will eradicate any other pests, aphids, thripes, mites, uh, fungus gnats, you name it. So you can actually release these spores in your uh, vivarium that are safe for the frogs. They don't target amphibians. They don't target mammals. They don't target hexapods or uh, isopods, but they will uh, attack the insects in there and er eradicate pests that we constantly have to deal with. Like, so something like a spider mite would come and eat it and then just die? Uh, well, not even that. The spores actually will germinate on their exoskeleton, and then the hyphae will actually drill into the body of the insect, and then it'll actually take over the insect and then sporulate from that insect and infect others surrounding it. So it's really cool. It's like wow. <laughs> World War type stuff, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, again, stuff like that, really in the past, people didn't see a use for it. You know, people in, in the past didn't see a use for these little ornate mushrooms that I'm like, wow, these are the coolest things. I'd love to be able to put a pine cone or a leaf in there and they just all of a sudden sprout up all these little cool mushrooms. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, the biggest thing about vivariums is biosecurity. Like you don't want to put unsterilized stuff in there. You don't want to put stuff that could harbor harmful fungi or harmful bacteria. That's how things go horribly awry. That's how you get eggs in there of nemertines and snails and slugs and things like that is putting unsterilized stuff from the wild in there right but you want some really cool things unfortunately the only way typically to get those cool things like slime molds like these tiny little mushrooms is by putting unsterilized stuff in there mm -hmm. so i'm trying to um isolate a lot of these different fungi for useful things uh for rag king pests but also for um enjoyment we all see these beautiful little mushrooms 
of particular types without having that risk of biosecurity, without having the risk of introducing something that could be very harmful to your animals or to the plants or the rest of the vivarium. So um, going out and collecting these samples, I'm looking for those weird things, those things that are not cultivation. And uh, it's like the other day I brought back a pine cone that had like 30 or 40 little tiny mushrooms on it. And I brought that back so that I could actually take some tissue samples of those tiny mushrooms, grow out that fungi, which is very difficult to get a clean sample of especially very tiny fungi, but I'm gonna try. And, and that way I can actually grow it out into a clean culture and be able to inoculate my own pine cones or magnolia pods or leaves and then be able to share those with other hobbyists who are able to put those in a vivarium safely and enjoy them. And of course, it's a huge, long testing process I have to go through to ensure it's safe for everything too, but it's a long story. Um, no, that's very, very cool. And it's, it's actually, those are two of the questions I had. So it can be used for like, aesthetics and like a bioactive setup but also it it can be used as um pest control but also can be used as springtails and isopod food correct yeah so the thing is fungi are this huge double-edged sword they're the thing that's most of the time invisible unless you see the mushrooms but the mushrooms are just a very tiny portion of what fungi are it's the tip of the iceberg. and the thing is fungi are what springtails naturally feed upon isopods naturally feed upon and the nutrition that goes with the frogs is partially due to those fungi that then feed those springtails, those isopods. And my whole belief in this system, again, it's a holistic approach. And what I mean is you need all these various components to have a whole system. And so if you have particular types of fungi that are passing on their nutrition to the springtails and the isopods, and those frogs are eating those springtails, those isopods with the gut load of those particular fungi, is extremely beneficial to those frogs because there's certain fungi that produce compounds that you can't find anywhere else, which is also why we're looking at fungi for medical research as well. Um, but you also have to look at how fungi help to the beneficial fungi keep other fungi at bay through their mycotoxins. You know, think about it is people put all these different unsterilized things in their vivarium and different random fungal pop up, but sometimes it's actually harmful fungi. Um, like, for instance, uh, Lycoprenus burbamia. We had a huge outbreak of that in the hobby because a lot of uh, unsterilized uh, New Zealand fern fiber came in, which now they fixed the issue. They're actually heat treating it properly. So, Everything is good to go. Sorry, what was the name of the? Uh, Lycoprenus burbamia. A lot of people refer to it as flower pot fungus, but what most people don't realize is that there's so many different strains of flower pot fungus. Uh, it's like if I told you about uh, lion's mane and all the different strains there are. There's a strain that'll have fruits that are this big and ones that'll have fruits that are this big. There's ones that'll be pink. There's ones that'll be white. But the thing is, is that we have these genetic variations that sometimes make things uh, like fungi, for instance, extremely resilient to uh, predators, for instance, like, like Prince Burbamii is actually toxic to a lot of different isopods that try to predate upon it or that make it undesirable to most species of springtails where the springtails won't even touch it. Um, and it's things that also allow it to make it be more aggressive, to grow a lot faster. And that's where we're finding with this particular strain was that it was something that was overtaking even a lot of plants, like low-growing plants. It was killing some of those. It was killing a lot of different types of isopods. You know, dwarf white isopods seem to be unaffected, but uh, a lot of others, you know, especially a lot of Cubara species, it seemed to wipe those out. But the thing about it is if we have beneficial fungi in that vivarium, you know, everything is competition. Life is a competition, right? Yeah, it's of course. Uh, fungi. There's this constant war going on that we never see because it's microscopic. But fungi are constantly killing each other off and overtaking territory and battling for territory with their mycotoxins, which affect other types of fungi. But, uh, you know, penicillin is actually mycotoxin. It's something that um, we use to our benefit, but saying that fungi, a mold, actually originally made to war against other fungi. So if, and, and this is how my beneficial microbial inoculant came about. Because okay. if we have beneficial fungi and beneficial bacteria that are seeded into a brand new vivarium, yes, there's going to be other types of fungi and bacteria. There's going to be bacterial cysts. There's going to be fungal spores that are in that substrate, on those plants, on the decor, everywhere, in the air. But if we see that substrate with beneficial fungi, particularly types that are mycorrhizal, 
uh, whether it be endomycorrhizal or ectomycorrhizal, ectomycorrhizal forming a protective sheath around the roots of plants and endomycorrhizal actually uh, being within the plant's roots themselves, these fungi can actually fight off and these bacteria, beneficial uh, bacteria can actually fight off harmful types of bacteria and fungi that accidentally get into our vivarium and may try to take over. Because, you know, it's the same reason uh, when we make a mushroom block, a fruiting block, it has to be sterile because you want a blank slate to be able to grow that fungi out on. You, you don't get, want it to be battling other fungi. Yeah, you want it to be able to overtake the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you want it to be able to overtake it so it can then fruit out. In a vivarium, we don't want one particular fungi overtaking everything. We want this constant competition so that one thing never becomes too prolific. We want everything to keep everything else in check. And the thing is, if you start out with a blank slate, you may get a particular type of fungi or bacteria that's extremely aggressive in there that can overtake that uh, relatively um, competitionless uh, field and then cause a real issue with the vivarium. And so I made this fish microbial inoculant with these beneficial strains of fungi and bacteria, which will be fighting against themselves in that tank but they'll also keep anything else from being able to overtake the tank because that now established competition yeah. of official things. Um, They're and not the big dogs in there. Exactly. And, and then this fungi, the really beautiful thing is it acts as a food source for the isopod spring cells. It helps to break down the frog poop. It helps to break down decaying leaves in there. It also, um, the hyphae from these um, mycorrhizal fungi help to gather nutrients for those plants. So the really cool thing is they protect the plant roots from pathogens. They make them more resistant to disease, but they also allow those plants to grow a lot faster, a lot healthier, because these hyphae are actually able to go out and gather nutrients that otherwise are unavailable to the plants. It, it's a uh, symbolic relationship where in exchange for some sugars from the plants, these fungi will actually go out and gather nutrients to feed the plants. So, you know, fungi are such a huge part of a vivarium, and it's saying that uh, almost everybody overlooks because it's saying that you can't see unless it's a mushroom popping up. So, anyways, it's just so much fun. I could go down a thousand rabbit holes with it. No, that's that's super, super interesting, especially because a lot of substrates are now being sold with, quote-unquote, beneficial bacteria, but they're never really telling you what it's there for, why it's there, and all those reasons. So that's that's super interesting to see, and I wonder... I wonder if, if there's even the right beneficial bacteria in there or if they're putting um, things that are causing the because because I, I, I had no idea about the flower pot fungus, but it is it is still very common here. I don't know about you guys, but it's still very common here in Canada and it's, it's a yeah. problem. Uh, and I guess there's no real way to fight it other than balancing out the, the nutrient or the, um, the the bacteria and the fungi in, in the vivarium. Yeah, I mean, there are ways that you can eradicate it. Um, like taking all your substrate and autoclaving it and yeah. everything and you can seed it with the right stuff but yeah. it's a huge long process most people don't have an autoclave be able to do that um, so you know most people end up having to throw everything out which is so frustrating and uh, I'm actually um, working on an article right now that I'll be releasing soon which is about biosecurity in your vivarium because most people don't realize that if you get chytrid in your tank, if you get ranavirus in your tank, if you get, you know, all these different things that just are horrible, can kill your frogs very easily, um, you have to tear it down and start from scratch. And those can actually very easily spread from tank to tank to tank. So if you have a large collection, it can wipe out your whole collection and literally take someone out of the hobby. Absolutely. And so biosecurity is so incredibly important. Um, which is sometimes why, you know, I'm, I'm very harsh about other businesses that do not practice biosecurity, that do not care about the animals that they're selling being free of chytrid or ranavirus or parasites. Because um, it's something that can really easily um, destroy a lot of people, um, their hobby, their passion and their animals, which is what it's all about. Uh, 100%. Are there visual cues? To, to seeing any of those diseases or pests or anything like that? Like, are there things well, to look for? Well, there are, but the problem with it is once you see the signs of ranavirus, or once you see the signs of chytrid or the signs of parasites, <coughs> excuse me, typically it's too late. 
Mm-hmm. And I have people every single week that call me. I'm saying every single week. It's crazy. It's gotten really bad, especially since COVID. Um, but people are calling me every week. You know, some people crying because their animals are dying. And, you know, I, I tell them that they need to see a vet immediately because a lot of the time, once their animals are explaining signs, I do give out these free emergency kits. But some of these things are so severe at the time that the only way to save, save them is with prescription medications, with antibiotics, with uh, antifungals. And the problem with it is that most vets, unfortunately, um, that I'm hearing about are saying, oh, come in next week. Oh, come in next month. Well, that's a death sentence for a frog. Yeah. Uh, when it starts displaying signs of ranavirus or chytrid or parasite, parasites, sometimes if you feed them larvae, if you try to fan them up, uh, you can even dust the larva with um, like egg yolk powder uh, or with whey powder, something that's going to boost the nutritional content, something that's going to boost the fat content. Um, even then, you maybe have a week if you see that your frog is really emaciated. Yeah. If you're seeing the signs of ranavirus, the, the lesions, if you're seeing the signs of chytrid, again, um, this uh, sort of like lesions that form on the skin, problems with shedding, you maybe, maybe have two days before it dies. Um, and, and that's the problem is that a lot of people just can't get their animals in fast enough to save them. <clears throat> so the best thing to do, you know how they say, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth uh, a pound of, um, oh, I, I guess you could say like putting a Band-Aid on it or trying to fix it. I can't remember the exact wrong. Yeah, but better have it and not need it than uh, need it and not have it kind of thing. Yeah, well, it, it's better to get an animal that you know 100% is from a reputable place that is going to be free of parasites, chytrid, ranavirus. I mean, and if I don't have an animal, I have a list of over 30 other reputable breeders in the U.S. that people can get any animal from that they want. I mean, there's going to be at least one of those people that has an animal. But unfortunately, a lot of people, like I was the first time that I ever got dart frogs, they see one at an expo. And, you know, some expos are run great. And they actually care about the quality of their yeah. business. And, and there's actually um, uh, a company called Reptilian Nation Expos that does a fantastic job of this. If they see somebody that is not selling healthy animals, they will kick them out immediately. They'll ensure that people are only selling yeah. the animals. But there's other expos that, unfortunately, um, they just don't care. Um, they don't care or maybe uh, they just don't want to look into it. Maybe it's a friend of theirs. Um, but they will literally get wild-caught frogs. They will unbox them the day before the expo, uncrate them, throw out the dead animals, put the animals that are still alive on the table, and they're riddled with parasites. Send them to their death. Yeah, and, and it's just a death sentence. And then you have yeah. these come along that know nothing about frogs, nothing about amphibians in general. Yeah. This person that's selling the animals will say anything, anything to make the sale. They'll just lie out their their a you know yeah and the people believe them because they're selling something they trust them to be a professional and to tell them exactly how it is i guess they figure and this is the thing that i get all the time from people on the phone when they're calling me about their sick animals is oh i trusted them i thought they knew what they're doing i thought they bred this animal but no it's just saying they're flipping it's just saying they import it and um the really sad thing is is that these people who are inexperienced get this animal and not only is it a death sense for the animal, but oftentimes it's a death sense for that person's time in the hobby, because once they have that sick animal in their tank, they're going to have to tear out everything and start completely 100% from, uh, from scratch. Yeah. And it's very gutting for people. And it, it, it makes me really emotional, honestly, because um, you know I've had so many people crying on the phone to me about this. It's such a plague. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. And I remember that experience myself. I'm like, oh, man, like I've been there. I've done that. I know exactly what you're going through. And I try to comfort them the best I can, walk them through sterilization procedures, you know, take it to your vet, you know, get them to to check it out and tell you exactly what it is. But it, it's a horrible experience. So anyways, we could go on all day long about biosecurity. But when I release the article, you'll have to, to take a look at. And, um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of good information there that most people just don't realize because they see this animal, looks amazing, and it's an impulse purchase. 
And and that's the worst thing that somebody can do getting into this hobby. The worst thing they can do. Don't impulse buy anything. Yeah. Because um, you got to check out the reputation of who you buy from. If you're buying from someone that isn't a good uh, vendor, somebody who doesn't care about your success, they just want to make a buck. Yeah, oftentimes you're going to buy a sick animal. And um, that's the thing. If I don't have something, I've got a list of over 30 people. Like I can find your reputable breeder that has anything in the world you want. Just don't give someone your money that doesn't care about you, doesn't care about animals. Just don't buy from a flesh peddler, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's 100% true. Uh, awesome. And then so on that note, maybe we can talk about the uh, emergency kits as you already sure. uh, mentioned them. Um, what for, Well, first of all, what, what was the... Uh, we know why you created them but how did you think of creating them and sort of like how do they work is it just a little bit of um of what's needed in each one or i don't know if yeah if you could explain yeah. sort of how the emergency kits work oh, i'd love to um so the biggest thing about it is you know i can't give veterinary advice because i'm not a licensed veterinarian of course and it takes a lot of years and i have a few friends who are veterinarians and it is a lot of work it's a really tough job they have definitely earn their degrees, definitely earn their certifications. Um, but what I can do is I can provide supplies and I can tell people how I personally treat my own animals. And then, you know, they can take that information and do for it as they will. But the, the thing about it is I wanted people that weren't able to get to a veterinarian time or people that um, aren't able to afford a veterinarian because sometimes, unfortunately, it is how people's budget, especially, you know, people losing their jobs during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, some people have hardships. And I didn't want that to be a death sentence for the animals because it often has been the past. And it's the most heartbreaking thing when you have this animal and you lose your job and you can't save it. You just can't save it because you can't afford the, the $200 vet bill. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to be able to help those people. And, and that's why, you know, I give them away for free. Um, all you use is the emergency. Uh, it's the code, the coupon code is emergency. And you can get to two of the kits completely for free. Um, all you do is pay the ship and handling, which goes straight to USPS or straight to UPS, you know, and, and the rest of the cost is on me. And, um, and, that's I, awesome. and I put instructions in there for how I treat animals for particular things. Uh, I put information on there on how I typically will observe the animal and see what's going on with it, what could potentially be the cause, like, for instance, for weight loss, um, you know, because sometimes weight loss, it can be caused by a thousand different things. It could be stress. It could be parasites. Uh, it could be too low of humidity. And so I put all those different things in there. It's, um, it's where people can usually pinpoint the issue that's going on. And they also have um, one of my kits is for um, being able to test wild caught frogs because again, so many people fall into this trap of accidentally buying things that are unquarantined, untreated, freshly imported wild caught frogs that are oftentimes riddled with parasites. And um, it actually has the vials in there, the uh, all the different materials they need to be able to take fecal samples or skin swabs along with a lab submission form and instructions on how to fill everything out to then send it to the laboratory so they can get results back and know if they have particular parasites or if it has chytrid or if it has rantivirus. That is really cool. So essentially they're, they're do-it-yourself help kits um, where people can do a lot of these things at home to save their frogs. And then when they're able to afford to or they are able to get in for an appointment, they can take them to a vet. Because my first thing I always tell people is take it to a vet. That's the first thing. Take it to a knowledgeable vet because some vets only know about dogs and cats. You have to remember a veterinarian has so much more difficult of a job than, and some doctors are going to hate this, but it's true. Doctors have it really rough. I mean, doctors have a really hard job. They do a great job, but veterinarians have to memorize the anatomy of so many species whereas doctors only have to remember one humans right yeah. doctors only have to worry about humans and veterinarians have to worry about i mean dogs and cats and lizards and snakes and yeah. frogs and all this and and probably different lizards probably have different things and and different snakes and they do yeah. and so it's one of those things where um you know they're constantly kind of crossing new and so you can't take an exotic frog, someone who's only familiar with dogs and cats. 
you have to take it to somebody who's familiar with amphibians in general, because with amphibians, you treat them vastly differently than you would a mammal. Uh, For instance, again, I was talking about their osmotic skin, be able to treat them with medication through their skin, which is just amazing quality. Um, So I tell people, find a qualified veterinarian so far as the animal that you have. Uh, The veterinarian is going to be qualified as veterinarian, but not necessarily experienced with frogs. So find one, call them, ask about frogs. Generally, if they're someone who's very experienced with frogs, they're not going to say, oh, come in next month. Yeah, they're going to be like, come in right now. Yeah, they're like, come in right now, because they know with amphibians, if you have something that's um, exhibiting uh, some type of symptoms that are very severe, it's good to die within usually 24 or 48 hours. So, so again, these are self-help kits until you can get into a veterinarian. Um, but it's something that, you know, I've had so many people that have told me that it saved their frogs. And that's honestly a really good feeling because um, I don't want people to go through the tragedy that I originally had to go through. I want people to be successful. And, uh, and those emergency kits help for their success. Yeah, I've seen uh, somebody with uh, on one of the Facebook groups actually put, put up a post. Um, I can't remember it was some months back. I might, I might try to go back and find it. But he, he had something wrong with, uh, with his frogs, and he said that he had used one of the emergency kits. Mm-hmm. And maybe it wasn't that far back. I, I, don't, I don't know. But, yeah, they used one of the emergency kits, and now, now the frog is doing it fine. Well, so that's that's very cool that, he, that, that they work. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's constantly looking at, you know, every once in a while people compass like, hmm, I need to make a kit for that because it's something that's more obscure. But I've at least got the most common things covered now. Yeah, so you have a kit for... Um... Well, there's one for weight loss. There's one for if somebody gets a wild-caught frog. Loss. Weight loss kit actually also has that wild-caught amphibian kit in it itself. Because okay. sometimes that's the reason for it, uh, losing weight as parasites. Yeah. Uh, also, one particularly for bloat, because that's a huge issue in the hobby. That's the one it was. It was bloat. It was a very fat rat tomato. That's what it was. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. A lot of the bloat, uh, honestly, I see is because of uh, sphagnum moss being kept in the vivarium. It's this constantly soggy, too wet, bacteria laden layer. Because mm-hmm. frogs, they need high humidity. They desiccate easily. But a lot of people think for some reason that you have to have the ground soggy. But that just leads to bacterial growth, which then they absorb directly through skin, oftentimes causes bloat. Um, also, one for uh, vitamin A and uh, calcium deficiency, uh, hypocalcemia or uh, hypovitaminosis A. Um, and I also have one that is uh, for abrasions, because that's another common thing that, you know, a frog will go under a piece of decor and they'll uh, have a scrape on its skin and then that uh, scrape will become infected. What do you what do you put on what what do you recommend for infected uh, like you have scratch or infected skin like abrasions? So so the best thing that I use is silver sulfadiazine, uh, but what typically is used and what's uh, readily accessible is silver gel. Um, silver gel silver is I mean amazing. It has great antibacterial properties, and um, most of the time, just plain silver gel that you'll get from uh, a pharmacy actually will uh, take care of most infections that they have uh, dermally so very very interesting okay i'm gonna wrap up part one of the episode here make sure you tune in next week to hear about alternative feeders to fruit flies and what else chase is working on make sure you give chase a follow at the original houston frogs and check out his website www.houstonfrogs.com i'll have the link to both of those in the show notes i am daffy's reptiles on all social media platforms and daffy's roundtable for the podcast Thank you all for listening and we will see you on the next one.